play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Glenn Phillips. Glenn is the lead singer of Toad the Wet Sprocket, and he recently released a new solo album called There Is So Much Here. Glenn and I talk about sad food versus happy food, and then I dig into a style of cooking that elicited some very strong reactions from you on Instagram, microwave cooking. We'll discuss the connection between feminism and microwave ovens, and I chat with Nicole Kafka, daughter of award-winning food journalist Barbara Kafka, author of The Microwave Gourmet. And on the complete other end of the food spectrum, we'll learn the history of kitchery with one of the country's most revered Ayurvedic chefs, Divya Alter. But first, my conversation with Glenn Phillips. Toad the Wet Sprocket was from a, a Monty Python sketch. It was Eric Idle and it was, it was like a fake rock news show called Rock Notes. And so he's going through just the worst band names possible. And one of them was Toad the Wet Sprocket. Another one was poached herring in a white wine sauce. <laughs> that but. could have been your name. Glenn recently released his first solo album in six years. His last album was called Swallowed by the New, and it was written post-divorce in a cloud of grief. But the new album, There is So Much Here, is a collection of love songs focusing on gratitude, beauty, and staying present. Okay, so I was curious. Your last album was post-divorce, and then this album is more of a celebratory, I'm back to being alive again album. I was curious how that might affect the way that you eat, this being a food podcast. Do you notice that you eat differently depending on your mood? Definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, depression food tends to be sweeter and heavier. Probably like most people, ice cream. Yeah, that or or frankly, bad mood food is also, I do a lot of chips and hummus. I'm the kind of guy who I think when I'm depressed, I'm very low desire. So mm. it's that kind of open the fridge and like, what's enough calories to get me through the next four hours? It's like a cleaning out the fridge and just yes. putting something in my mouth. Uh, happy food tends to be lighter and fresher. I mean, I will also say the biggest change in my last three years now was moving in with my fiance, which I eat a lot more like her now. Most of our diet is vegan uh, with the occasional chunk of fish thrown in there. Part of it is living in Santa Barbara. We have a farmer's market that I've been going to, you know, probably 30 something years. And I know my growers and I know my, you know, Roots yeah. has the best carrots and Shepherd has the, you know, the the Provence and like, you know, these incredible little melons. Having that relationship with the local food economy makes it very easy to just want to eat that way. Especially in Santa Barbara. I live in Seattle and we have amazing farmer's markets. But once the winter comes, it's like, OK, potatoes, all right, onions. But you can kind of get a lot of the stuff year round. It's not fair. Yeah, uh, it's the best <laughs> way to put it. It's yeah. a really it's a, it is a really privileged way to eat. As you just heard, Glenn loves to cook fresh food from the farmer's market. 
but he didn't necessarily grow up eating that way. Food was perfunctory. Uh, you know, both my parents were hard scientists and my mother was also from the era of like women's lib of freeing yourself from the kitchen. So mm. it was labor saving devices and she did feed her family and she cared about it, but she was very much into the microwave. Uh, it was expedience, right? Yeah. And so anything she could cook in the microwave or thought she could cook in the microwave, she would. What's the least conventional the thing that, yeah, or the worst. Yeah. What was the worst thing? The worst was she beef tongue was on sale and Woof. she'd never bought her prepared beef tongue before. So I just remember this big, uh, like Pyrex platter with a whole beef tongue on it completely gray from the microwave. And she had like a half an onion on either side of it, just <laughs> sat down in the Pyrex. And it was this rubbery beef tongue. And I remember my dad with a knife just going, <laughs> like trying to cut through it. Uh, and it was pure impenetrable rubber. The other thing she did once was corn muffins in the microwave because somebody said you could. So there was this like little bit on the outside where you could kind of gnaw off there. Like the inside was completely rock hard. Yeah. You're all trying to gnaw it off and not mention it. And luckily my grandmother was visiting from Iowa and she picked one up and just looked at it and said, they're inedible, but <laughs> placed it down and saved the rest of us. Ah, uh. The microwave. In October, food journalist B. Wilson perfectly articulated its existence in an article she wrote for The Guardian. She said, it's hard to think of another household object owned by so many and praised by so few. Over 90% of Americans own a microwave. But last week when I went on Instagram and asked you, do any of you use a microwave to cook? Some of you were offended at the mere suggestion. I got responses that were glazed with horror. Responses included, ew, no, nope, and my personal favorite, the barf emoji. And that's pretty much the same response award-winning food writer and cookbook author Barbara Kafka got when she first published The Microwave Gourmet in 1987. The Microwave Cookbook, everybody really sneered at the whole idea of doing anything with a microwave at all. Microwaves were just really, really frowned on by the food world. That's Nicole Kafka. Her mother, Barbara Kafka, passed away in 2018. Barbara was the food editor at Vogue. She was friends with Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and was eventually given the Cookbook Hall of Fame Award by the James Beard Foundation. But when her microwave cookbook came out... No food people. No major cookbook authors. No restaurant people supported microwaves at all. My mother does address in her introduction, she says... For many years, I was wrong about the microwave oven. I read the manuals that came with ovens and was repelled by the recipes I saw. I was a microwave snob, as most of my chef and food writing friends still are. When I finally announced, rather sheepishly, that I was writing a microwave cookbook, I felt I would have had a better reception had I announced my intention of going down to Times Square at 3 p.m. to take my clothes off. It was actually Nicole who piqued her mother's interest in the appliance. I was in medical school, like 1985. My mother had been working with Cuisinart and various other companies. And one of the results of that was that she was given microwaves. And at the time... The attitude toward microwaves was that all they were good for was heating up TV dinners, which certainly was not 
something that any self-respecting food-oriented person would have any interest in. When I went to live in an apartment of my own for the first time, I asked whether I could take the microwave. And she was more than happy to give it to me since she wasn't using it. And one day she called me and we were talking on the telephone. She said, well, I've got to run. I've got to get started on dinner. We're having artichokes. And I said, well, why do you have to leave now? You don't eat until about eight o'clock and it's only five. Well, I have to trim the artichokes and then I have to start the water to steam the artichokes. And it takes a long time for the artichokes to steam. And I said, well, why do you do all that? It takes me five minutes in the microwave. And she was struck by the idea that something that took her a long time and a fair bit of effort could be done quickly with minimal effort. So she tried it and it worked. She just trim the artichoke, wrap it in plastic wrap, put it in the microwave and it cooks. And that started her on her exploration of the microwave. She tried cooking all kinds of foods in the microwave and quickly discovered that vegetables are phenomenal cooked in the microwave. Fish is also phenomenal. Anything that you would steam, for example, is great. You'd never get things really crisp. She went from there to devising a whole variety of recipes for cooking so-called real food in a microwave. I'm looking at some of the dishes from that book, Snail's Dijon, Roast Leg of New Zealand Lamb, Chinese-style fish with leeks and ginger, pheasant with currant cream, uh, porcini, veal bolognese. So, you know, really gourmet things. Oh, braised calves brains with turnip sauce, Barbara Kafka's microwave shrimp risotto. I mean, I agree with you about the risotto. It's pretty weird. And there are a bunch of risottos that are in here. There's a New England clam chowder. And then there were desserts, peach crisp, polenta pudding with raspberries, creme brulee. Now the creme brulee, you do have to put them under the broiler to finish them or get a torch to finish them. There's a very simple Cornish game hen with grapes. If you're making the recipe for two people, it cooks for eight minutes. Can this be a boon to the working person who wants to still have a good meal? Surely can. Ding, ding, ding. Nicole is hitting on the crux of the microwave's popularity. It's a huge time saver. That's why Glenn's feminist mom used one. It's why the microwave gourmet sold so many copies and why Barbara Kafka wrote a second microwave cookbook. Modern household appliances liberated women. It allowed them to get out of the kitchen and get jobs outside of the home or just do anything else besides cook and clean. Thomas Edison, right, the inventor of the light bulb and, you know, electricity. He wrote in Good Housekeeping magazine in 1912, for ages, woman was man's chattel, that means slave. And in such condition, progress for her was impossible. Now she is emerging into real sex independence and the resulting outlook is a dazzling one. This must be credited very largely to progression in electrical mechanics. Under these new influences, women's brain will change and achieve new capabilities. That's Jeremy Greenwood, professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania and author of Evolving Households, the imprint of technology on life. Well, life was very uh, laborious for women, uh, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. 
So if you can imagine like the task of, say, doing your laundry, the family would have to go out, get water, bring it into the house. Someone would have to go out, get firewood or coal. They'd have to heat up the water, wash your clothes. Then you'd have to take the clothes out and dry them outside. And then after that, iron it. So you'd take one of those metal irons, they'd be heated up in the stove. The iron would cool down. They'd have to go and get another hot one. And so if you think back, when people talked about laundry day, basically because laundry took a whole day to do. And so there was like an interesting study. The Rural Electrification Authority timed how long it took her to do the washing without appliances. That took her four hours. And they also hooked her up with a pedometer and calculated how many feet it would take her to you know, do the washing. It would be around 3,000 feet. With appliances, that time got cut down to 41 minutes and she only had to walk 300 feet. Then they also calculated it would have spent about 3.5 hours ironing. And with appliances, it took about an hour and three quarters. It would have taken uh, the average housewife about 58 hours a week you know, to do her housework. If we look at 2020, the average American housewife would spend 13 hours a week. So that's a huge difference in the amount of time spent on uh, housework. The microwave oven was invented on accident in 1945. An engineer named Percy Spencer was testing military-grade magnetron tubes. The story goes that he had a chocolate bar in his pocket, and it melted when he was testing this vacuum tube. Then he thought, well, why does it melt? And he placed an egg by the magnetron, and it exploded, but he noticed the yolk was hot. So he built a metal box. He put food, inserted food into it, and he saw that it cooked it. At first, they were only used commercially. At that time, microwaves were the size of refrigerators and cost twenty to $30,000 in today's money. Microwave entered residential use in the 1970s. So by the 1980s, 60% of households you know, had a microwave. Jeremy doesn't think the microwave had the biggest influence on unshackling women from household duties. He gives that credit to washers and dryers, but he certainly thinks it did make a difference. I will say I did get plenty of other messages from people who say they cook eggs in the microwave with great results. My friend and former colleague Colleen said she grew up eating a microwave chicken breast and gravy dish that she now makes for her own family. And a listener named Carrie messaged to say that she once had, quote, an excellent microwave from scratch risotto at a friend's parents' house in Albania. Even Helen Rosner, the much-revered food writer for The New Yorker, wrote a piece last year called How to Cook with Your Microwave. Helen actually had a copy of Barbara Kafka's book when she was in college, but ditched it to become a microwave snob like the rest of us. But last year, she picked up the book again and was reminded that microwaves are excellent steamers. Helen said she made a delicious, silky fish dish, and she printed her favorite recipe from Kafka's book, Microwave Artichokes a la Grec. When I was growing up, my mom would wrap potatoes in plastic wrap and microwave them. She would microwave some other vegetables too, but I've never actually cooked a meal in the microwave. But if Helen did it, it can't be that bad. I'm gonna pick up a copy of the Microwave Gourmet at the library and report back. Do you follow me on Instagram? I'm at Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E, and Instagram is where I will post pictures of my microwave cooking creations. It's also where I ask questions so you can respond in barf emojis. Follow along, Hello Rachel Bell. 
Okay, time for a break. But when we come back, Glenn reveals his last meal. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a Landon Gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash meal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. The show is called Your Last Meal. So the big question is, what would your last meal be? Oh, I thought it was what my last meal was. Oh, like literally like the last thing you ate? Yeah. No. <laughs> oh. It's deeper than that. It's just a catalyst to kind of get to foods that are important to people and or things that just taste really good. So yeah, it would it's more like what's your favorite thing? Oh god. Well, honestly, the last meal I had is a pretty good indicator. Can I do the last one I had? Because yes. I wouldn't mind that being the last Let's meal. Let's make I, it I super had, meta. I'd want to eat with people, you know, hopefully someone other than me who knew a bunch of songs and could sing together after the meal, because that would be important. What did we have? Uh, we got really into kitchity. Uh, I over, love kitchity, yeah. Yeah, and so I did like a brown rice mung bean and random instant pot kitchity. So kitchari, it's right. It's a, it's a bean, it's a rice or a, a, a doll and a rice, ginger, garlic, uh, onion. I like pureeing them. And then a whole bunch of, you know, turmeric, garam masala, uh, cumin, lots of coriander. And for people who don't and, know, you cook it down with a lot of water until it's kind of like a mush. It's kind of like a porridgey when it's done. Yeah, very porridgey. And I add a ton of, and you can do it just plain like that. I added half a cauliflower and like a big zucchini squash and a bunch of carrots. So I like it like chunky with a bunch of veggies in it, put okay. it all together. So it's more of a stew. I like topping it with a little yogurt and, uh, you know, the crunchies, actually the Trader Joe's ones work great. The little crunchy, uh, like chili and garlic flakes in oil. Oh, the chili crisp. Yeah. Yes. So love the chili like crisp. I'll, I'll top it with yogurt and cilantro and then the chili crisp and oil over the top. Yum. Pretty much perfect. And then I did okra uh, with adobo and uh, like blistered uh, cherry tomatoes and green onions chopped. I had that kind of on the side. And on okay. Top. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think done right okra is just the best. I love it. I love the texture of all the little poppies, like the poppy seed. The seeds, that one can pop. They are right. not poppy <laughs> seeds, but I, lo I love okra seeds. And uh, I made a mistake on this batch. I, I added a little sake. I like the okra crisp and I wanted a little sweetness from the sake, but I kind of screwed it up and they weren't crisp anymore. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. 
Your puppies weren't popping. No, they weren't popping. And then we had a big salad and everything's from the farmer's market in town, except the mung beans and, the, you know, mung bean spices. But that was an awesome meal. And we had a lot of people over, which is the other thing and babies to play with. And, and so is kind of baby food anyway, so everyone can eat it. It's really good. The only thing about it is I like to add, I had a fresh jalapeno and smoked dried peppers from the farmer's market. I'll clean the seed out of that and add that. And I didn't add any uh, spice to it because of the baby. Because those damn babies. Why more of the chili crisp on top. (laughs) So why would that be your last meal? Why is that meal important or special to you? Um, it's delicious. I mean, Kitchi has become my chicken soup. Mm-hmm. It was like the go-to one-pot meal all through lockdown. I love it because it's different every time. I have a few different ways of making it or different dolls I'll throw in or different balances, the spices. And so it's always playful and it's always fun. And it's a great way to get rid of like vegetable ends. I enjoy its, its functionality and it's just so yummy. It's so tasty. And... I don't know. I think I would feel good about that meal. You know, morally, if I was about to die, it's like, well, there's some dairy. Like, I do kick myself. I'm one of those ex-vegans who still like, you know, is like, oh, probably I need to go plant-based someday. I know I'm a (laughs) shitty person. Is there there any element of Ayurveda that you practice? Because kitchari is kind of like the thing that people eat when they do an Ayurvedic cleanse or you kind of adjust the seasonings or the spices for your for your constitution. Oh, yeah, there's no, not at all. Okay. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I mean, I I mean, it was recommended to me, actually. I was like, oh, I was having like some stomach whatever. And she's like, oh, try kitchari. It'll, you know, balance you out and even you out. Just make a mild one. And I kind of started there and then I got obsessed with it and started right. going down my own. For his last meal, Glenn Phillips wants kitchen with vegetables, topped with yogurt, chili crisp, and cilantro, eaten with friends, and he wants a sing-along for dessert. What is your go-to sing-along song? Uh, the one I like to pull out the most, just because everybody knows it, but nobody thinks you'll play it on acoustic guitar, is Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. How does that you go? I feel it all over. Uh, you get everybody to sing along on the horn part, the bump, ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, ba-da-bum, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Bump, ba-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out I never knew the name of that song. Of course I know yeah. that song. <laughs> the Duke. Yeah. You can feel it all over. And doing the instrumental is almost like scatting, which everybody likes. Yeah. It's so fun to watch people jump into that. It's kitschy. It's pronounced in a special way. You have to tilt your tongue to go to the back. It's actually a Hindi word. That's Divya Alter, author of the best-selling cookbook, What to Eat for How You Feel, owner of America's first Ayurvedic culinary training program, chef owner of the plant-based restaurant Divya's Kitchen in New York City. And during the pandemic, she created a product line, selling dry kitschy mixes. The dish kitschy is rice and mung beans, what they call dal. It's the rice and beans, the classic combination that you can see in every cuisine all over the world. And this is very old, right? This combination of rice and lentils. Yes. So Ayurveda is the ancient healing system of India. It existed for thousands of years. And one of the oldest known texts is Charaka Sanhita, which historians and scholars, they say that it's 2,500 years old. 
But Ayurvedic practitioners and doctors, they said, no, it's much older. But there's a huge section on food. They're kitchri recipes. The Sanskrit word used for this dish is krishara, krishara. You want me to give you the ingredients for the yeah. original recipe? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, this is a big scoop. <laughs> <laughs> so it's rice. And they explain the rice has to be easy to digest. It's mung dal, the split mung beans, salt, dry ginger powder, uh, a little bit of ghee, and a spice called asafoetida. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called hing in India. It gives that sulfury, oniony, garlicky flavor. But also what it does is it reduces the bloating effects of lentils and beans. The beano of ancient India, right? Kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> And water, you cook it in water. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, so that's one of the original recipes that are recorded thousands of years ago. There are wet kitchenies, which is what I make. It turns out like a porridge. And then there are dry kitchenies, which are more like a pilaf. People use different spices. Some have vegetables. Some are plain. Kitchenie is extremely versatile. And depending on what you're using it for, it will determine what ingredients you're making it with. For example... When I talk to my Indian friends, it's like, oh, yeah, kitchri is only for sick people. It's like when I was sick, my mom would make me kitchri. Why? Because in general, when kitchri is prepared properly, it's supposed to be very easy to digest. And it kind of resets your digestive system. So if you're using it as a recovery food, depending on what the condition, what are you recovering from? Are you recovering from the flu or from surgery or from giving birth? There are certain spices that you would use. So the stronger your digestion becomes, the more you can add vegetables. But when you have very weak digestion, then you have to nourish your body with the least amount of ingredients. Mm. Your body is kind of like a secretary. You're not giving too many tasks to your secretary at the same time. So a kitchen can be used as detox. Are you using it for kids? Like in India, they would give kitchen as the first food, the first solid food. If you're feeding a child, like a young child, then there will be very few spices in it. It will be mm -hmm. very creamy, very light. Or if you're just in good health and we're just using it as your main meal, this is how I usually use it, then you can definitely make it a little richer. You can add more ingredients to it. You can add more vegetables, make it spicy. And then the spices vary according to your body type. It vary according to the season. We're recording this now in middle of the winter. <laughs> yeah. And when it's very cold, we need more spices, especially warming spices to keep us warm on the inside. And then in the summer, we need less spicy food because it's so hot. We don't need the heat from most spices. So that's the idea. You, you adjust the seasonings. Ayurveda is all about living life in balance. And food is used to assist in that. Divya started eating an Ayurvedic diet years ago when she had an autoimmune disease that affected her digestion and her energy level. She reminds people that food can be medicine. The staggering statistics is that four out of 10 people in America have some of them are chronic digestive issues, whether it's gas or bloating or constipation or acid reflux or heartburn, you know, they're all related to the way we eat. It's not just what you eat, but also how you eat it. So eating freshly cooked food is always easier to digest. But also when you eat it, just sit down. <laughs> Don't just walk or stand and eat quickly and talk a lot while you're eating. So sit down peacefully, look at your food, smell it, like really connect with it. So you engage your senses, all your senses in the process of eating. 
you'll notice when you eat mindfully like this, your mind will be satisfied as well. Because a lot of people tend to overeat because we distract ourselves while we're eating in different ways. We eat in a stressed mindset. The stomach feels full, but the mind is not satisfied. So we keep eating. If you want to learn more about Ayurveda and Kichidi, go back and listen to my episode with one of my favorite singer-songwriters of all time, Nikki Bloom. When we come back, Glenn talks about how cooking made him a better parent. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. When Glenn's kids were growing up, he loved to cook for them. But he had another secret, slightly more selfish reason for all his time spent in the kitchen. For me, cooking was this thing where I could take a lot of time to myself. I like my solitary time, but it was solitary time that was accepted and rewarded. That I could take a few hours to make something, but if it was delicious, then nobody would be like, God, you're so selfish. You're spending, like if I'm sitting there playing guitar and trying to come up with this art of reading or doing whatever, it's an indulgence. But if I made a risotto... And I like got to stir it the whole yeah. time or made kokavan or made my weird time intensive go to recipes were these more elaborate dishes they really loved. We didn't do kid food like past maybe two or three. They had great open palates. Now she's a chef. My middle daughter's a, a, a oh, cook. Cool. Earlier in the show, Glenn talked about all the terrible dishes his mom cooked in the microwave. But there were a couple dishes that she made well that Glenn really liked. And I felt like his mom should get some redemption. She shouldn't just be microwaved tongue mom. My mother made the best chicken soup and matzo ball soup in the world. When it came to like traditional Jewish, like Ashkenazi cooking, yeah. she took no shortcuts. And her chicken soup was absolutely curative and full of love and the best thing on earth. My mom is similar. My mom also not a great cook, but her matzo ball soup is the best thing she makes. And I make it yeah. now. And there's also no shame in the game that whenever people ask for the recipe, I use the box for the matzo balls. Like I make the soup. The box Marischewitz is shockingly it's delicious. It's so good. And I'm afraid to make my own in case they don't turn out as good because they are so light and fluffy and they taste good. You have a song in your new album called The Sound of Drinking. What is that about? Well, all the songs on this record were from prompts from a songwriting game. And you need to use those words in order at some point in the song. And I knew everyone was going to write The Sound of Drinking as a bar song. <laughs> so, so the title of that song was The Prompt. The Sound of Drinking was The yes. Prompt. Okay. Sound of uh, Every song on the album, The Prompt is the title. And, and so I was thinking... Just about lockdown, uh, moving in with my partner and having this 
quiet at home that I hadn't had in probably 20 years since my youngest daughter was born and noticing little things. What it feels like to have the water going down your throat, what it feels like to hold the glass in your hand. And then the slower things like, you know, watching the, the seasons change, watching the leaves turn and fall and stuff we can become blind to. It's all so beautiful to pay attention to. So since you wrote The Sound of Drinking, where you were noticing and being mindful of drinking this glass of water, have you been more mindful about eating and drinking since? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think living with a 14-year-old American boy, he would just mock us relentlessly if we did that. This has been a pretty savory episode. So before we wrap up, let's have some dessert. What is your perfect birthday cake slash perfect dessert for your birthday? I think it's from one of the Moosewood cookbooks. Uh -huh. have, there's a Mississippi mud cake. It, it's like has dark coffee and uh, it might be bourbon or something in it. It's just this super thick thick, like dense, just like, like <laughs> incredible chocolate cake. It's, it's like an utterly unapologetic, super rich, chocolatey coffee, like death by chocolate, chocolate cake. I love and in it. the Moosewood cookbook, I thought you were going to say there was ground up spelt in there. Or, no, you know, wheat germ. I think it's, would it be Moosewood? I want to say it was Could be like the old yeah. one. It was fantastic. I'm looking it up <laughs> just to see if it comes up. Yeah. There you go. And that was Glenn Phillips' last meal. Check out his new album. There is so much here. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for your time. You're super generous. Yes. And it was lovely meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk to you. You Take too. Care. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks to Nicole Kafka and Jeremy Greenwood, author of Evolving Households, The Imprint of Technology on Life, and to Divya Alter, chef owner of Divya's Kitchen in New York City. Yes, we serve Kitri at Divya's Kitchen and it's very popular. And we get a lot of celebrities. And I know this very famous singer, he always orders the Kitri. Last time I saw him, he said, I actually book a hotel close to your restaurant so that you, I can just walk to your restaurant and eat your Kitri. That was a huge compliment. You can find links to everything I've mentioned from Glenn's new album to Divya's Kitri mixes in the show notes of your podcast app. And speaking of podcast apps, please give us a quick five-star rating and write out a quick little review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Your Last Meal is now an independent production, so that is a free way for you to support the show. And if you'd like to support with money, you can donate to the show's production costs by becoming a paying subscriber on my Substack newsletter. Link in the show notes. This episode of Your Last Meal was produced by me. This episode was mixed by Randy Torres and theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. When you have company, roast a chicken. When you're in a hurry, roast a chicken. <laughs> you know, when you're, um,